0: One of the things that we've done here in the last uh, uh, year or so is we we crafted a list of member expectations. If you were in the class that Jerry taught about this, and you'll be quite familiar with all of them, but uh, if you're not, if you're curious about what our member expectations are, you can pick up one of these cards out in the foyer. It's got stuff on it that's. really shouldn't be all that shocking to us. Things like uh, members will deliberately and consistently cultivate personal spiritual growth and Christian fellowship. Really, our member expectation list is a list of things that are, are expected of disciples. And so none of them probably should come as a shock to anyone, and yet anytime you start talking about a church's expectations for its members or, uh, in my case, a preacher's expectation for uh, his church. We engage kind of a tired old debate about grace. Grace has taken on a very different definition in our uh, modern church world than I think it does in scripture. We uh, argue Essentially, in the Christian world today, anytime somebody says, well, we need to do this, or we need to do that, or there's a should, there's, there's an action that has to be taken, somebody at some point is bound to raise this issue of grace. And it really doesn't matter where, what the source of it is. We could, we, could, we could look at the Gospels, we can look at the teachings of Jesus, where he says, go and do this, and we'll say, but grace... Grace is our exit strategy. Grace is our get out of jail free card. And so this morning, as we talk about, it, we're going to be talking about work. One of the deceptive philosophies that we have to uh, counter, even in church culture, is that salvation by grace invalidates work. We've come to this point where anytime. Anytime we have a conversation about what it is that believers need to do, it is rejected out of hand as some sort of violation of the principle of salvation by grace. American Christian grace has become kind of a rabid reductionism, such that all we really need to do is have a salvation moment, be decent people. And that's the end of the journey. It requires nothing of us, not the least, discipleship. And yet, as we have worked through these practicalities that Paul presents to us, practicalities about what it means to live under the supremacy of Jesus Christ, he doesn't tell us how to feel about it. He tells us what to do. He tells us what action to take it requires something of it of us living the life under the supremacy of jesus requires more than just an intellectual acknowledgement of who jesus is it requires us to act now i have led you through what is arguably an expansive interpretation of paul's words Because Paul lists a lot of things in list form. He just kind of hits the highlights. And we have taken the time to to break those things out further, to look at some of Paul's other letters and some of Jesus' teachings and to expand on those things so we can get some sense of what he's talking about and what it calls us to. And we've looked at the ideals, the ideals for Christian life and the ideals for church and the ideals for family and for marriage and for parenting. And whenever we're talking about ideals, whenever we're grappling with those concepts, that can be pretty overwhelming. And it can be discouraging. We look at the ideal and we kind of compare that to where we are and how we're functioning right now. It's like, ah, this doesn't necessarily feel great all the time. But there is a basic truth at work here a core principle upon which this entire series upon which all of Paul's teachings in this letter to the Colossians is based and it is this insane idea of the supremacy of Jesus Christ that Jesus comes first in everything that he is the better idea that no matter what it is that I'm asking No matter what brokenness I'm experiencing, be it my brokenness or the brokenness of my marriage, the brokenness of my family, the brokenness of my church, no matter what it is, Paul's solution to the problem is follow Jesus better. That's insane at least by the world's standards, that's insane. How, how can it always be the same answer? Like when you were growing up and going to Sunday school and the teacher asks a question and you don't know what the answer is, there's a 98% chance the answer is Jesus. Or at least if you say Jesus, you won't be too far wrong. Is that the argument that we're making to the world right now? And no matter what question you're asking, no matter what heartache you have, Jesus is the answer. Is it that trite? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, it is. Because Jesus is the only perfect example of anything. Jesus is the only solution. The only truth. This is an active pursuit American Christianity has to a large extent adopted this notion that to be a faithful believer is to have good feelings about Jesus and in turn to expect that Jesus will make me have good feelings about myself. But that is a very shallow pool. James 2 and 17 says, in the same way, faith by itself is if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. American Christianity seems to have forgotten the letter of James. Faith without works doesn't mean anything. It's dead. The truth is, what we do about Jesus defines and demonstrates our faith. And no, we cannot be saved by works. We all understand that we cannot be saved by works. But faith without works doesn't work. If we are not acting on the tangible reality of what it means to follow Jesus, then really it's revealing how little faith we have. And can I just say this morning by way of confession that I struggle with this personally all the time. I look at my life and I begin to recognize how little faith I actually have. How little faith I'm actually bringing to bear. And I have watched Jesus lead me and my family through so many trials, so many difficult situations, so many Situations and opportunities. And in hindsight, I can look back and go, look what God was doing all of that time. And then when I turn around and look into the future or attempt to look into the future, guess what I find in myself? I find doubt. I'm trying to control things, I'm trying to manage things for my future because I still don't have the faith to recognize that what Jesus has done for me in the past, he will continue to do for me. Our failure to act on who Jesus calls us to be demonstrates how little faith we actually have. How much that faith needs to grow and be cultivated This is the radical theology that Paul offers to us. It's the theology that Jesus is the answer. And the fact of the matter is, Paul is telling us, Jesus is the answer or he isn't. There's not a middle ground in between where Jesus is the answer sometimes or Jesus is the answer part of the time or Jesus is the answer for some situations. He simply says, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the solution. No matter what brokenness, no matter what problem, no matter what sin, Jesus is the solution. Being more like him is the work that we need to do. And if he is the answer, and if I believe that he is the answer, then that faith will manifest in my life as the action that I take to be more like him. And this will be the solution to whatever crisis I am in. This is the work that we're called to do. And it is in that context that we come to this passage today. In Colossians chapter 3, 22 through 24, Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything is a powerful passage and I want to talk to you more about the value of work this morning but first we kinda have to address the elephant in the room because there is another very deceptive philosophy that is at work in our culture that says that the Bible endorses slavery you'll hear this argument it'll, it'll come up from time to time typically comes up when somebody doesn't like something else that the Bible says. I can ignore what the Bible says about X because the Bible endorses slavery. And we all know that slavery is wrong. Well, let's unpack this a little bit. First of all, uh, this is uh, not an endorsement. I understand why it could be read that way. I understand why it's often interpreted that way. And in American history, in in the American South, during a period of slavery in this country, clergy were often guilty of using this passage to justify those actions. And so it's completely understandable how somebody could come to the conclusion that the Bible does, in fact, endorse slavery. There is no condemnation in this passage passage, and it actually has the gall to tell slaves how to behave in relationship to their masters. Well, there's a few things that we need to understand. First of all, most Roman slavery, very, very different from the slavery that we know about from the 17th and 19th century. That's not to say that slavery in Rome wasn't oppressive. That it wasn't miserable and cruel at times, but it was just very, very different. It was not generally race-based. For instance, it's very common that the slave in your household be the same ethnicity and nationality as yourself, and it was uh, it was primarily class-based. It is what we would call uh, indentured servitude. In fact some of your translations may have translated it servant or bondservant. So it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a different dynamic. And the truth is that the Bible allows for servitude as an economic reality. Now pay very close attention to the vocabulary I'm using here because I don't want us to misunderstand. Allowing something to be is very different from endorsing it. The Bible allows for this servitude as an economic reality that a lot of people exist with. That doesn't mean that the Bible established this system or that the Bible is saying that this system is a great idea. The Bible is simply acknowledging that this is happening. Now, in Rome, this servitude, was the state that uh, people found themselves in, generally for a couple of different reasons. One is that they were members of a defeated army, a defeated military group. And so if you're a defeated military, all of your possessions have now been forfeited to the Roman Empire, and you are destitute. The other folks that often ended up in slavery were people who were destitute already. They were extremely poor. And so two, two primary ways by which people became slaves, one, which one was they, they lost a battle. The other was they were so poor that either they sold themselves into slavery or their family sold them into slavery. Kind of crazy, but all of these things uh, did happen. Servitude in Rome, and I know this sounds really callous to say, But servitude in Rome is a kind of a really terrible form of societal welfare. In other words, people who ended up in slavery were choosing this over the worst options. And the worst options were death, jail, and begging. Slavery was the Roman safety net for what it's worth. Now I know it's very difficult for us to imagine a situation in which that safety net would be one worth taking, but that, that is, in fact, how the society was structured. And slaves in Rome, while they were considered property of their masters, did have uh, some interesting rights. They could buy themselves out of slavery. They were allowed to earn money, unlike uh, slaves in early American culture. They could earn their own money and and buy their way out. They were often very professional people. In Rome, the uh, accountants and doctors were typically slaves. Uh, What you pay for your doctor's bill now, you might appreciate doctors who live at that end of the cultural spectrum. Very different kind of scenario. Uh, And even though they were property themselves, Slaves could manage property and profit from it. The property technically belonged to their owners, but they had full sway over it and could uh, could make a profit off of it and use that profit towards purchasing their own freedom. The truth is, the Bible strictly regulates servitude to the benefit of the servant. Now, we've been talking primarily about Roman servitude, Roman slavery, but we know that this servitude also took place within Israel. And the law of Moses allows for this servitude, but strictly regulates it. And in fact, provides a great many provisions for the poor to sort of prevent this from ever happening. There were a lot of steps, a lot of things that were available to you under Mosaic law to keep you from falling into such dire straits that you might end up in slavery. And yet some people still did. And they would sell themselves or they would sell family members into slavery to other Israelites. But there's a couple of interesting things that you see about this that make it really different from the kind of slavery that we imagine and that we've, we've been encultured to think of. This slavery was voluntary. In other words, you could not force it on another person. That person had to choose this. It was temporary in the sense that slaves all had to be released in the Sabbath year. So the most time that you could serve as a slave without being at least afforded the opportunity of release was six years. And mistreatment of slaves was absolutely prohibited by the law of Moses. So the truth is the Bible specifically condemns abusive forms of servitude. For instance, kidnapping someone in order to sell them into slavery under the law of Moses is a capital crime. In other words, the kind of slavery that we're familiar with where we go to another continent kidnap people, put them on boats, bring them over here and sell them into slavery, expressly forbidden by the law of Moses. You cannot force people to enter into this. And it was not only forbidden, it was a capital crime. In other words, you could be put to death for engaging in this kind of behavior. You could discipline a slave but only in the same manner that you would discipline any other member of your household. As a matter of fact, if you caused a permanent injury to a slave in your household, you had to immediately, on the spot, set them free. If you caused the death of a slave in your household, you would be convicted of murder. All of this, uh, the law of Moses allows for this as an economic condition, but strictly regulates it. In regard to Rome, Paul does, in fact, condemn the slave trade uh, in First Timothy. But understand this. The gospel mission is not, first and foremost, political. The gospel does, in fact, have the power to transform societies and to transform governments and to change policies but it always begins with people. It always begins with disciples. That is the beginning place of the gospel. And yet Paul does, among that community of believers, begin to address the problem at work here. So at the end of Colossians chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, he says, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Or, perhaps more to the point, he says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one, In Christ Jesus. The theology that Paul presents us with is this that we are all created equal, and regardless of how divergent our path may have been since we entered into this world, in Christ we are equal again. In Christ we are all the same. The truth is, the Christian ethos undermines slavery and it led to its demise in the Western world. This very Christian tenet, this idea that we are all created equal, an idea that simply did not exist in the world before it was introduced by Christ himself. This tenet that we are the same regardless of race, gender, or class, undermines servitude, particularly in its most abhorrent forms, but it makes all servitude essentially untenable, distasteful. And so from William Wilberforce to Martin Luther King, Jr., it is faith in Jesus Christ that has conquered the ugliest forms of bigotry and slavery. And Yet, Servitude persists. Servitude is an economic reality. Are you in debt? Do you have to pay somebody? You have to pay them interest? Do they have the power, if you don't pay them, to make your life kind of miserable? Then you know a little taste of servitude. Do you pay taxes? you pay taxes to a government that often acts in its own interests and not yours, and you still have to pay your taxes? Then you know a taste of servitude. Are you dependent on an employer for your livelihood? And you know a taste of servitude. This is our economic reality, that things are unbalanced. And we cannot really complain because, We have been largely protected. We haven't ever experienced the worst of servitude. And yet, even from our privileged position, we can look and see that the world is out of balance. We can see that things are not fair. We can see that class and wealth buy you power that not everyone can enjoy regardless of whether or not it is deserved. And here is where another deceptive philosophy crops up. It is this, we think that life is not fair because some people have more than they deserve. True enough, there are some really nerdy guys out in California who make billions of dollars managing little bits of data on the interwebs, who control social media and make more in any given afternoon than you and I will make all year. And these people, these people who never do any hard labor at all, who never do any real work, taking it upon themselves to decide for you what you can say and not say on their forums. In essence, they have decided what is true. And they will define it as they will. The government of our free society can mandate or threaten to mandate that you get a vaccine. that may or may not make you immune to COVID-19. But guess guess who will be immune? The multi-billion dollar manufacturers of those vaccines will be immune from any prosecution. We've already decided this. The government has already decided this on your behalf. The culture around us and powerful forces within that culture are constantly working to seduce our children into false truth and false wisdom, to sell them on terrible ideas, and to do so to the extent that now we're going to sick federal police forces on parents who object to this treatment. These are all things that are happening right now in our culture. One of the most powerful, strongest, freest cultures in the world. All of those things are happening right now. All of those things are taking place. Things are out of balance. (coughs) The psalmist says in Psalm 10, In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. In other words, the psalmist says, the wicked prosper. Often, the wicked prosper at the expense of the righteous. And that's unfair. That's out of balance. And the world is perpetually out of balance. And we, although we have been sheltered from the worst of it, we can see it. But consider this. When Paul speaks to people who are at the bottom of Roman society, people who have virtually no opportunities in the sense that we have opportunities, people that have no freedoms in the sense that we have freedoms, People who have adopted, accepted a level of servitude that you and I would find absolutely intolerable. And what is Paul's very first advice to them? What is his counsel? It says, live for Jesus. First, before you do anything else, live for Jesus Now we we are at work, we have our mission to perform in a culture that is filled with people who are going to live for Jesus when they get around to it. Who are going to live for Jesus when it becomes more convenient. Who are going to live for Jesus as soon as they get some of their own stuff worked out and and taken care of. What Paul says to the people who have nothing, who are at the bottom of the culture, who already live in a situation more desperate than any of us could ever imagine ourselves living in. He says, before you do anything else, before you consider any of your options, live for Jesus. The truth is, life is not fair because grace is more than anyone deserves. In Christ... We will not get what's coming to us. And thank God for that. We will not get what we deserve. The grace of Jesus is, by definition, unmerited and unearned. We will receive an inheritance. We will receive sonship. We will receive love. We will receive glory. None of it did we deserve. Christ is not about the business of making life fair. He's about the business of tipping the scales such that all the unfairness is in your favor. You have more than you ever earned. Grace is not the absence of work or effort. Because if we really believe in what Jesus is doing, what he has done, then, then we will strive, we will work all the harder to please him. In Christ, hope is the thing that's out of balance. Hope. Such that those who have lived the most desperate existence Have the most cause for joy. Because in Christ, things will be made more than right. Paul says in Galatians 4 7, he says, So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is not fairness, this is a disproportionate goodness. And yet all of our mythology about equity persists. We're still trying to make everything even, still trying to give everybody the same outcome. And so we arrive at our last deceptive philosophy for the morning. You'll love this one. Jesus was a socialist. Jesus was a socialist. Yeah, this comes up with surprising regularity in the media and in academia. Jesus was a socialist. Because Jesus was uh, kind to the poor and Jesus was critical of the rich, that must mean he's a socialist. Now, I'm picking on socialism this morning. I, I could pick really any economic or political system and you could substitute that into this sentence. Because the reality is that for whatever reason, Human beings, as they try to justify what it is that they're doing, have always, at some point, arrived at this argument that Jesus would be in my camp. Jesus would agree with me on my system of government, my economic system, my social uh, order. But it is particularly interesting that socialists and their kissing cousins, the communists, would claim Jesus because both of those systems tend to be anti-religion systems. They, they reject religion, and they reject religion for one major reason. Both of these systems require that we surrender everything, all personal property, over to the government and let the government manage it for us because government manages things so well. Religion has a negative impact on trusting the government. When we put our trust in God, we tend to, we tend to be competing with the power of human authority. Beyond that, though, Jesus offers no wealth re- redistribu- redistribution plan. He does not attempt to reform Roman government, and as a matter of fact, he puts no faith whatsoever in in any human structure of government to redeem us from anything, including our own. See, the truth is that Jesus is far more interested in spiritual formation than he is in politics. Rather than looking, as we so often do, and in our culture it has become a religion unto itself, rather than looking to government, to make policy changes that will somehow improve people's lives and transform societies, that will save us from ourselves, even even when we don't recognize the things they're doing as being beneficial to us, it's still okay because they know what's good for us better than we do. Jesus had a very different idea. The gospel is based on a very different idea. You change the hearts of people. You change the hearts of men and if you change the hearts of men you begin to change the society and if you change the society eventually you change the world. You see we do as believers, as followers of Jesus, we do work for justice but it's not like any justice the world has ever known. The truth is that perfect justice will be the final result of the supremacy of Christ. And it will not be socialist. It will not be capitalist. It won't be a republic or a democracy. It will be a monarchy. It will be the perfect kingdom with the perfect king. And so, whatever we do, whatever decisions we make, whatever direction our life takes, whatever, whatever actions we engage, whatever values we assign, whatever expectations we have of ourselves and others, whatever we do, we do it as unto the lord and not as unto men because first and foremost we are not citizens of this world we are citizens of another kingdom we are still in servitude we are still bond servants but our servitude is to jesus christ we owe him a debt we will never be able to repay and yet because of his grace He will not only take us into his household and treat us well, he will make us sons and daughters.